You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Past and Future Impulses in Societal Events, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 11, given in Dornach on the 13th of April, 1919. You will have seen from the lectures yesterday and the day before that the threefold social order we have so often been speaking about and which has been the subject of public talks, can truly not be spoken about today by an anthroposophically oriented spiritual science as a matter of opinion, as a matter of subjective wish. My particular intention in yesterday's lecture was to draw your attention to how profound the impulses are that prevail in the life of the nations in the modern civilized world, in the world of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, I tried to show how, roughly, around the year 1200, an impulse awakens which signifies the ascent in Central Europe of what we can call the bourgeois social order, but that mixed in with this Central European bourgeois social life was a retarded soul life from previous centuries, a declining Nibelungism. This was the decaying Nibelungism which shaped itself into the soul life of the ruling, governing upper strata of the Central European states. And I emphasized very particularly what a decisive contrast there was in this Central European life from the 13th into the 20th century, where it has led to the terrible social death throes that have also come upon Central Europe. I then drew attention to the radical contrast between the inner soul experience of the broader bourgeois population and the people who traced their origins to the old culture of knighthood, to the old vassalage, to everything namely that was a psychological remnant of the old Nibelungism and constituted the politics of Central Europe, while the broader mass of the burghers remained non-political, apolitical. One must put oneself very earnestly, precisely if one wants to be a spiritual scientist, from a practical perspective, into this difference of soul that exists or existed between the so-called educated bourgeoisie and its dependents, and those who sat on the central European seats of government, however constituted. This is what I discussed yesterday. Today we will look a bit more closely at why this fundamentally magnificent intellectual movement that ascends from Walter von der Vogelweide right up to Gertinism, but then after Gertinism undergoes a rapid decline, why this intellectual movement did not manage to get to grips with the functioning of society, to somehow form thoughts about societal life. We have just to consider that even Goethe, who was able to develop the most comprehensive ideas about many things in the world, was only able to give a few hints about how a new social order should be developed among civilized humanity, and was, as one might say rather audaciously, not very clear about them himself. 
Fundamentally, the tendency toward a three-folding of a healthy social organism has already been in people's subconscious since the end of the 18th century. And the call for liberty, equality and fraternity, which will only make sense once a three-folding has been established, bears witness to the fact that this subconscious longing for a social threefolding exists. So why did it not see the light of day? This is connected with the whole nature of the intellectual life of Central Europe. Toward the conclusion yesterday, I pointed to a curious phenomenon. I said that Hermann Grimm, so highly respected by me, who was able to shed light on so much to do with art, with general human concerns, with antiquity, fell into the curious untruth of admiring a mere phrasemonger like Wildenbruch. If you will allow a personal remark, I have often drawn attention over the years to something which, when simply related, might seem pretty insignificant to the listener, but which for someone who looks at life symptomologically can have a great and profound significance. Among the many conversations I had with Hermann Grimm in a period when I had personal contact with him, there was one during which I spoke about some things from my perspective which are to be understood spiritually. And when I had finished speaking about these, I have always drawn attention to the fact that Hermann Grimm only responded to this talk about spiritual things with a dismissive gesture of the hand and said that this was something he didn't wish to go into. At that moment there was in this hand gesture a commentary that was immensely true. In what way was it so immensely true? It was true insofar as Hermann Grimm, with all his penetration into the so-called cultural and intellectual development of humanity, in the arts, in the expression of humankind in general, did not have the faintest notion of what the spirit has to be for the human being of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. Hermann Grimm simply did not know what spirit is from the viewpoint of a person of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch. When one discusses something like this, it is, of course, important not to stand too harshly on the viewpoint of truth. At least with regard to the spirit, a person like Hermann Grimm was truthful. Because he knew nothing about how to think about spirit, he made a dismissive gesture. If he had been one of the phrasemongers who go about today masquerading as prophets and wanting to improve people, he would have believed he could join in the talk about spirit. He would have believed that when one says spirit, 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 that something has really been said that corresponds to a real content one has in one's soul. Among those who have also talked a lot about the spirit over the last few decades, without having a notion of what spirit is, must also be included the majority of theosophists. For actually it can be said that among all the spiritless chatter that has gone on in recent times, the theosophical chatter was the most disheartening and in part also bore the worst fruits. When one says something such as I have just said about Hermann Grimm, whom I would like to regard here not personally, but as a representative type of our times, we can ask how it is possible that an individual such as this, one who represents Central European life so completely, has no idea about how one needs to think when it comes to thinking about the spirit. 
Hermann Grimm is really only a representative here of Central European life. And then bear in mind the culture I described yesterday, which around the year 1200, this is approximate of course, emerges as the culture of the bourgeoisie and rises to a peak in Gertianism. If we bear this brilliant culture in mind, the characteristic feature of it, for which it need not be valued any the less, is that it is pulsated through and through in the most beautiful sense by what we call soul, but completely lacks what we call spirit. We need to appreciate this with all the tragic feeling it calls for, that precisely this culture that was so brilliant lacks what we can call spirit. But naturally we have to understand spirit in the way we learn to understand it through anthroposophically oriented spiritual science. I return again and again to this representative individuality of Hermann Grimm because the way he thought was how thousands upon thousands of educated people thought in Central Europe. Hermann Grimm has written an excellent book on Goethe comprising lectures Grimm gave at Berlin University in the 70s of the 19th century. Of all that has been comprehensively said by this educated stratum of people about Goethe, it is true that the best has been said by Grimm. And from the standpoint of his soul, Hermann Grimm had a talent for describing people, but a talent also for apprehending human characteristics accurately, for appraising them in the right way. In this respect, he was brilliant at finding the right words to describe things. I should like to remind you of something. Hermann Grimm was, naturally, also one of the group of people I spoke about yesterday who, with respect to the Nibelung wildlings, lived in untruth. He was enthusiastic about Frederick the Great and had a very particular idea in his soul as to how Frederick the Great should be pictured as a Teutonic Germanic hero. Now, the English historian and writer Macaulay produced a portrayal of Frederick the Great, written, of course, from an English point of view. In an essay on Macaulay, Hermann Grimm wanted to point out that actually only a German with the right sensibilities can understand Frederick the Great and draw the lines by which this character could be sketched. And he characterized Macaulay's portrait of Frederick the Great very accurately when he writes that Macaulay turns Frederick the Great into the shrewd face of an English lord with snuff on his nose. Now, finding a characterization such as this means we can round off our ideas, that these ideas can become malleable. We could cite many examples that show how a mind like Hermann Grimm's is able to characterize very accurately and also other similar minds from the whole cultural period of Central Europe I described yesterday. But if, with the goodwill that arises from a recognition of Hermann Grimm, we look at his monograph on Goethe, which is by far the best of all that has been written, what feeling do we have? We have the feeling that this is something very beautiful, something exceptionally good, but it is not Goethe. Fundamentally, there is actually only a shadow image of Goethe there, like having a three-dimensional form that is cast as a shadow on a wall in only two dimensions. I would say that chapter by chapter Goethe wanders like a specter from 1794 to 1832. A spectral Goethe is depicted, not what Goethe was, what Goethe thought, what Goethe felt, what Goethe willed, 
but what wandered like a specter through the decades I have just mentioned. Goethe himself did not bring spiritually to consciousness everything that was living in his soul, living spiritually, that is, in his soul. This is the great problem today when it comes to Goethe, to really raise what was living spiritually in Goethe into consciousness in a spiritual way, something Goethe was unable to do, because at that time it was only possible to have a culture imbued with soul and not a spiritual culture. And thus when Hermann Grimm, who was firmly rooted in the Goethe tradition, tried to speak about Goethe's mind, he only had a shadow of him, a specter, a schema. And it is certainly a characteristic phenomenon that what we have to declare to be best of what has been written about Goethe and Goetheanism only gives us a specter of Goethe. This is a telling phenomenon. So where does the reason lie for the fact that throughout this whole brilliant cultural development the concept, the experience, the feeling for the actual spirit is lacking? People like Troxler, at times also Schelling, have tentatively alluded to the spirit. But seen purely objectively, we have to say that in this whole culture the spirit was lacking. And because the spirit was lacking, People were not aware of the needs of the spirit, were not aware of the conditions necessary for the life of the spirit. Such a view of this cultural stream is something that can give rise to a feeling of tragedy, that people were not able to perceive, not able to sense the necessary conditions for the spirit, including the social conditions for the life of spirit. But this is why Central European societal life was able to develop as it did, because it had no real experience of the spirit, and so did not feel the need to create the basic conditions required for this spiritual intellectual life by emancipating it, by putting it on its own footing and separating it from the state. Because people didn't know the spirit, they also didn't know the innermost life conditions of the spirit, and therefore didn't feel the necessity I am still talking about these areas. There were other areas, too, of the present civilized world where people didn't feel it, but for other reasons, close parenthesis, of establishing the spirit on its own footing, but let it merge with something in which it could only develop in shackles, with the state. We said that 1200 was the period in which we can place the activity of Walter von der Vogelweide, the period in which the cultural-spiritual life of Central Europe pulsated in mighty imaginations, about which conventional history tells us very little. This cultural life flowed on through the centuries, but already from the 15th or 16th century onward it began to absorb the seeds of its decline, and the cultural-intellectual life of Central Europe saw the founding of the universities of Prague, Ingolstadt, Freiburg, Heidelberg, Rostock, Würzburg, and so on. The founding of these universities, which seed themselves into the life of Central Europe, occurs in almost just one century, with the life and thinking that radiated out from the universities came the tendency toward abstract thought, to what was idolized and venerated as pure natural science. We can say idolized, naturally, only in a relative sense and which impacts so devastatingly on people's habits of thought today. And fundamentally, the whole educated bourgeois 
world derived its nuance from this life. So, what was the nature of this nuance of the educated bourgeois world? Naturally, there was much involved here that did not well up, as it were, in every individual, but in its effect it was transmitted to everyone. Included in this effect was the fact that there emerged more and more during this period a receptivity for a completely foreign soul life that took shape in the bearers of bourgeois education and then culminated in Goethe, Herder and Schiller. This led, apart from what lay in one's own soul, to the development of essentially foreign elements, foreign impulses. I am drawing attention here to a highly characteristic phenomenon. The souls of these people, who were the bearers of burgerdom, were looking for the mind or spirit, for which they didn't even have the concept. But where did they look for mind? In Greek education. In their middle schools they learned Greek, and the spiritual intellectual content that flowed into their souls was Greek content. In Central Europe from the 13th to the 20th century, when one spoke of the mind, one would have to say that this was what had been inculcated into one about mind by a Greek education. But Greek education about the mind or spirit was not yet the education of the era in human evolution that we call the age of consciousness soul development. This only began in the 15th century. Thus this burgerdom bore within it an absolute education, Greek education, which actually only gave it what the Greeks had felt or sensed of the mind. But what the Greek felt of mind or spirit was definitely only the soul side of the mind. The depth of Greek culture lies in the fact that the Greeks managed to rise up precisely to a sense of the highest level of soul. They called this mind or spirit geist. Certainly the spirit shines down from the heights, Steiner draws on the board. The way I am drawing it here, it shines down from the heights and pulsates through the soul element. But if we turn our gaze upward, we have the soul aspect of the spirit. But the task of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch is to raise oneself into the spirit itself. The cultural development we have been speaking about was not yet able to do this. This is far more important than people usually think, for it clarifies the whole way in which modern medieval education tried to get hold of the spirit. So, what was necessary in order to come to a concept of the spirit, to an inner experience of the spirit, in accordance with modern times? We can study what was necessary to work one's way into an inner experience of the spirit in the modern era precisely by means of such a representative phenomenon as Hermann Grimm. What was necessary for this was precisely what an individual like Hermann Grimm with his classical education had no idea about, namely scientific endeavor, the scientific way of thinking. Why? Because the scientific mode of thought is devoid of spirit. The scientific mode of thought, when it is really great, contains not a particle of spirit, nothing spiritual. All natural scientific ideas, all ideas about the laws of nature, are devoid of spirit because they are only shadow images of the spirit. 
because when one knows something of the laws of nature, there is nothing of the spirit there. We can then go two ways. We can devote ourselves to science, as many do today. We can go no further than what science gives us. Then we become devoid of spirit. By doing this, we can become great scientific researchers, but we have to be devoid of spirit. That is the one way. The other way is where we experience as something tragic the spiritlessness of science, precisely where it has emerged in its greatness, where with our souls we submerse ourselves into the knowledge of nature. When we dive down with our soul into all the laws of nature that can be discovered, which are interesting and often enlightening, but are devoid of spirit, when we dive down into the natural laws of chemistry, physics, biology, which are obtained from the dissection table and thus already show how they only yield up the dead aspect of life, when we try to live with knowledge that is not only human arrogance, but when we try to ask, quote, what does this give the human soul? Close quote, then it is experienced. There is no lack of spirit then. This is also the tragic problem of Nietzsche, who was fractured and torn in his soul life, precisely through this sense of lack of spirit in modern scientific education. And then the reaction can come in the inner being of the soul. One can then experience how, in gazing at nature, the mind becomes completely silent, remains mute, says nothing. The soul rears up, gathers together all its strength, and then endeavors to bear the spirit out of its own inner being. This can only occur in the era in which a direct natural predisposition is absent in people like those with a central European bourgeois education and who encounter a scientific culture. Then if they are not dead inside, if they are inwardly alive, the impulse of the spirit gathers itself in their inner being. Ever since the 15th century, for the spirit to enter human soul life at all, it has to be born through what is dead. Hence those who, with only their classical education, are living out the last fragrance of Greek culture, which allows the soul aspect of the spirit to pulsate through the human soul. Only these can still be content in their inner experience that gives them a sense of this Greek soul-mind or Greek mind-soul. But those, on the other hand, who are required to engage with science in all inner seriousness, and to sense its death, its corpse-like quality. These are the ones in whose souls the Spirit will arise. In order to have a real direct experience of the Spirit in the modern era, one must not only have been in laboratories and smelled cyanic acid or ammonia, or been in a dissecting room and seen the fresh specimens from the cadavers. One must have experienced the scent of corpses and the whole trend of natural science, in order to come through this sensation to the light of the spirit. This is an impulse that must arise in the modern era. This is one of the trials people must go through in modern times. Science exists far more to educate humanity than to give us truths about nature. Only a naive person can believe there is an inner truth in a law of nature as identified by academic scientists. No, there is none there. But 
Science devoid of spirit exists precisely in order to educate humanity toward the spirit. This is one of the paradoxes of the world historic evolution of humankind. Thus only in modern times, in the time since Gertianism, for it was then that the actual corpse-like quality, the death-like aspect of science emerged, did the spirit shine, but only for those who wished to receive its light. And so up until the Goethe period and Goethe himself, people protected themselves against the devastating influence of a life of thought shackled to state compulsion by basically elaborating Greek thought, which did not belong to the modern state because it did not belong in general to the modern era. The separation of the life of thought from the life of the state was provided for in a surrogate way by absorbing an alien life of thought, that of Greece. This Greek thought was then what concealed the inner spirit emptiness of the modern European world. That was on the one hand. On the other hand, people also did not feel the necessity for a separation of the economic life from the legal system, from the life of the actual political state. Why not? It is impossible for people ever to withdraw from the economic life. Put trivially, this is ensured by our stomachs. It is impossible for people not to notice such cataclysms in the economic sphere in the way they fail to notice them in the fields of law and intellectual and cultural life. Thus economic activity always existed and has developed along a very straight course. What I indicated yesterday, the transformation of impenetrable forests into pastures and cornfields with all the economic consequences that ensued, all developed along a very straight regular line in a very straight direction. But the experience of these economic conditions was invaded by a foreign element that was strong for a longer time in the Central European soul than the Greek influence. It was invaded by the Roman Latin element. And everything that is related to the state and legal system, to politics, arose out of this Roman Latin element. And here again we have an incongruity that will have to be rigorously stressed by future history but is overlooked by the biased conventional writing of history, biased namely toward materialism, of the immediate past. This incongruity lies in the fact that certain economic ideas, certain economic dealings in life, a certain approach to economics in life, developed in a straight line from the social conditions described by Tacitus for the first century of the Germanic world after the founding of Christianity. But these habits of thought with regard to economics had not developed unhindered. They were invaded by the Roman political mode of thought which infected them completely and kept apart the original European economic customs and the political system of laws. And so the economic life and the political life ran artificially alongside each other, seemingly separate, but in such a way that the separation was a mask, because the political life had a Roman nuance and the economic life had the old Germanic nuance. Because two mutually alien strata existed interwoven in one another, people felt they did not belong together, even though outwardly they merged. But people were content because they nevertheless experienced them inwardly, in their feeling, 
as separate. One only needs to study medieval history in the modern era to see that in Central Europe this history and truth is one of constant protest, constant self-defense, constant opposition of the economic conditions brought over from former times toward the state system, toward legalistic Romanism. When we look at things pictorially, we see how Romanism, in the form of jurisprudence, penetrates into people through the heads of administrative officials. And a lot of this Romanism penetrates precisely into the declining Nibelung wildlings. The word Graf, Count, Earl, is connected with Grafo, to write, as I have mentioned once before. This is where Romanism pushes its way in. As I said, we can see it pictorially in the image of the peasants who are filled with this economically oriented thinking and who either clench their fists in their pockets or rise up with threshing flails against this Roman juristic element. Naturally, this is not always so awkwardly apparent, but if we really look at history, this is how it is in all its moral activity. Thus what developed from the seeds of the Central European world was pervaded. This is not a criticism. I am simply characterizing, for everything that happened also brought blessings and was necessary, was unavoidable in the development of Central European history, was pervaded, infected by legalistic political Romanism and by Greek humanism, by the Greek concept of spirit-soul or soul-spirit. And only with the emergence of the modern international economic element, with all its consequences, was it no longer possible to sustain the old things. It was perfectly possible to have a classical education and yet be an ignoramus with regard to the scientific education of the modern era. But then one was inwardly and psychologically regressive. One couldn't move with the times if one was only classically educated if one did not absorb what was given by the scientific education of the modern era. And if one had a scientific education, one was aware of what science of the new era was trying to introduce, then one could truly only react by going through cultural sicknesses, cultural scarlet fever, cultural measles, when one acquainted oneself with what had developed out of the old legalistic Romanism in the period I have been speaking about. In the ancient Roman Empire, this juristic Romanism was appropriate. But then this Roman jurisprudence from the old Romanism, the res publica, or how it was regarded, propagated itself through Central European education, as did the Nibelung wildness on the other side. Yes, my dear friends, cultural scarlet fever, cultural measles, is what we get when we don't think jurisprudence simply abstractly, but permeated with healthy scientific concepts, we open ourselves to this something that figures as law in the literature and in science. This reached a certain climax when someone like Rudolf von Eyring, who was ingenious, could simply not work out how to get to grips with the lamentable notions of jurisprudence in the modern era. The book he wrote, Der Zweck im Recht, The Purpose of Law, became quite grotesque, because a person who had made some acquaintance with scientific thinking 
now wanted to apply his acquired linguistic notions to jurisprudence. The result was a human thought-changeling. It is truly martyrdom for healthy thinking to engage in modern legal literature. For at every moment one has the feeling of it moving like earthworms through one's brain. This is what it is like. I am just describing imaginative perceptions. We must have the courage to look squarely at these things in order to see that we have reached a time in which not only institutions but people's habits of thought must be metamorphosed, transformed. People need to begin to think differently about many things. Only then, under the influence of human habits of thought and habits of sentiment, will it be possible for societal institutions in the outer world to become what the terrible, horribly eloquent facts are calling for. A fundamental relearning is necessary with regard to the most important things for modern humanity. But because this modern humanity, particularly in the period I spoke about yesterday, beginning in 1200 and ending with Gertianism, absorbed thoughts that move through the brain like earthworms and didn't notice it, the result is the lassitude, the passivity in thinking that is a characteristic phenomenon of the modern era. The characteristic phenomenon of the modern era is the absence of will in the element of thinking. People just let their thoughts come, give themselves up to them, would most like to get them by instinct. One can never pierce through to the spirit in this way. One can only penetrate through to the spirit when one genuinely and objectively introduces will into one's thinking, so that thinking becomes an act like any other, like chopping wood. Do modern people really have the feeling that they get tired by thinking? They do not, because for them thinking is not an activity. Modern people do not experience that for someone who doesn't think in words but in thoughts, tiredness comes over them sooner than it does by chopping wood, so that they can't carry on. This is not an experience modern people have. But this has to be experienced. Otherwise, modern humanity and its social coexistence will not be able to bring about the transition I spoke about yesterday and the day before, the transition from the sensory world into the supersensory. All of you are aware that one doesn't have to become clairvoyant in order to cross into the supersensory world. One only needs to comprehend with sound human understanding what can be researched in the supersensory world through the path of the seer. It is not necessary for all humanity to become clairvoyant. What is necessary is something that is possible for every individual, to receive insights into the spiritual world with healthy human understanding. Only in this way can harmony enter the modern human soul, for it is precisely due to the developmental conditions of the times that this harmony in modern souls is lost. European development, with its American extension and its Asian outposts, has reached a point today where real conclusions are being drawn by the spirits of the super-terrestrial world concerning what was common practice in the relations between peoples of the earth in ancient times and what became common practice in later times. How were peoples distributed over the earth in ancient times? Up to a certain time, that was actually not very long before the mystery of Golgotha, Everything that was brought about in the configuration of peoples on the earth was determined from above. 
It was determined by souls simply descending from the cosmos, from the spiritual world, into bodies alive in a specific region of physical human evolution. Thus in Greece and on the Italian peninsula in more recent times, certain human bodies existed as a result of the physiological, geographical, climatic conditions. To be sure, parents brought their children into the world, but the souls came from above were completely determined only from above and intervened very deeply in the whole configuration of the human being in his external bodily physiognomy. Then came the great migrations. People migrated in various waves over the earth. A mixing of races and peoples took place. Through this, heredity became a factor of significant importance in earthly life. A population living in one particular area of the earth migrated to another. Thus certain regions of the continent were the territory of the Angles and the Saxons who migrated to the English portion of the British Isles. This was one such migration. Now in their physical heredity, the descendants of the Angles and Saxons were dependent on what had developed previously on the continent. They were like this in their physiognomy, in their occupations, and so on. Through this, something enters human development that is horizontally determined. Whereas previously the distribution of people over the earth depended only on the way in which souls incarnated or descended, a contributing factor now was what emerged as the migrations, as the movement of peoples. But in this regard, precisely around the turn of the 14th to the 15th century, a new cosmic historical element, a new cosmic historical impulse emerges. For a while, things were such that there was a certain sympathy between the souls descending from the spiritual world and the bodies that were down below. Put in concrete terms, in the British Isles, above the British Isles, souls descended that felt a liking for the configuration of the bodies living on the British Isles as the descendants of the Angles and Saxons. From the 15th century onward, this liking diminished more and more. And from the 15th century onward, souls no longer followed racial attributes, but rather, once again, the geographical conditions, the climate, whether there were plains down there below or mountains. Since the 15th century, souls have been less and less concerned about the racial appearance of people. They tend more to follow the geographic conditions. The result is that in the humanity spread out over the earth today, there is something like a dichotomy between the inherited racial element and the soul element coming from the spiritual world. And if modern people were really more able to bring their subconscious into their conscious awareness, only a very few, if I may express it trivially, would feel comfortable in their skin. Most people today would say, quote, What I have descended to earth for is to live in a flat region, in green surroundings, or looking down on green surroundings to have this or that climate. And whether I have a face that looks Romanesque or Germanic is really of no great importance to me. Quote. Indeed, it does seem paradoxical when one describes these things, which are of utmost importance for human life, in concrete terms. There are people who talk pantheistically about spirit, spirit, spirit. They give good teachings and say we should move away from materialism and turn once again to the spirit. This doesn't shock people, but when we speak in these concrete terms about the spirit, 
people are not really ready yet to accept it, but that is how it is. And harmony must be sought once more between, let's say, a geographical predestination and a racial element that is spreading over the earth. Hence the international tendencies in our time, because souls are no longer concerned about the racial aspect. I have previously compared what is happening now to a vertical migration of peoples, whereas before this there was a horizontal migration. The comparison is not merely an analogy. It is articulated from facts grounded in spiritual life. In addition to all this, we must take into account that human beings simply through the spiritual development of the modern era are becoming increasingly more spiritual in their unconscious and that the materialistic frame of mind that is evident in their upper consciousness increasingly contradicts what they have in their subconscious. To realize this, we have to take a look once more at the threefold division of the human being itself. The way the modern person, oriented only toward the sensory physical, feels this threefold division is such that they say, quote, I perceive by means of my senses, which are distributed throughout my whole body, but are chiefly centralized in my head. This perception gives me my nerve sense life, close quote. But people today get no further than this. They can certainly describe how the human being breathes and that the life of breath is transferred to the movements of the heart, to the pulse of the blood. But people don't get much further than this. Our metabolism is studied in great detail, but not as a part of the threefold human being. Actually, it is regarded as the whole human being. You don't have to go far to find the scientist who says, man is what he eats. But the scientific mindset is fairly strongly pervaded by this idea that a person is what they eat. In Central Europe, people will soon be what they don't eat. This threefold nature of the human being, which because it is emerging more and more clearly, is trying to come to expression in a threefolding of society, is also differentiated over the earth. The human being is truly not just what is enclosed in his skin. It was in accord with a deep sensibility when in my first mystery drama, titled The Portal of Initiation, I had Capacius and Strader engage in all sorts of activities and then drew attention to the fact that human dealings on earth correspond to cosmic events out in the universe. With every thought we think, every hand movement we make, with everything we say, whether we stand, walk, or whatever else we do, there is always something happening in the cosmos. Modern people lack the perceptive capacities to experience these things. People today don't know and one can't require it of them, and it is paradoxical to say what I am about to say, how they would look if they only observed what was happening on the earth, let's say, from the moon. There they would see that our nerve sense life is something very different from what people know of it in physical sensory existence. Our nerve sense life, in other words, what goes on when you see, when you hear, smell, touch, is light in the cosmos, a radiating out of light into the cosmos. From your seeing, your feeling, your hearing, the earth shines out into the cosmos. Different again is the effect of everything of a rhythmical nature in the human being, breathing, heartbeat, blood pulse, 
This goes out in mighty rhythms into the universe and is heard by the corresponding organ of hearing. Human metabolism goes out into cosmic space as life streaming forth from the earth. You can't perceive, can't hear, can't see, can't smell, can't feel without shining out into the cosmos. Your blood can't circulate without your sounding out into cosmic space. And you can't complete your metabolism without this looking from outside like the life of the earth, the life of the whole earth. But there is a great difference in this regard between, for example, Asia and Europe. Seen from outside, the idiosyncratic way of thought in Asia, even today, where a great part of Asia has become unspiritual, would spread sparkling bright light out in the spiritual space. This becomes increasingly dark the more we move toward the west. There is less and less of a shining out into space. By contrast, there is increasingly more life pulsating out into space the further westward we go. So only in the human soul does there arise what we could call a view of the cosmic aspect of the earth, and humanity is part of the earth. Ideas like this will be needed if humanity is to advance toward a future that is wholesome and not unwholesome. The idiocy that is gradually generated by merely drawing the present geographic maps and teaching people that here is the Danube, there the Rhine, there is the Reuss, there the Ahr, there is Bern, here Basel, here Zurich. These merely external demarcations, which with the completed globe only spread what is sensory, this mode of education will bring humanity down more and more. Certainly it is necessary as a basis That is not to be disputed. But it will bring humanity down more and more. The globe of future times must show that in one area the earth shines because the people have spirituality in their heads. In another area the earth radiates more life out into the cosmos because that is the particular nature of the people in that territory. This is connected with something I have mentioned here before. We must always use one thing to shed light on another. I said that when the Europeans gradually settled in America, their hands became similar to those of the American Indians, became similar to the type of the old Indians. The reason for this is the fact that souls coming down today and descending into human bodies orient themselves more and more to the geographical conditions, as in ancient times, when the Indian culture is still the closest. Souls do not now orient themselves according to races, do not orient themselves according to what is produced in the blood. They orient themselves according to the geographical conditions. It will be necessary for people to inwardly penetrate what is happening in humanity. This penetration is waiting for humanity, for an inclination in humanity toward more mobile concepts that can engage with such things. But these can only develop on a spiritual scientific foundation. And a spiritual scientific foundation is only possible if the spirit can be born in the human soul. This requires an emancipated, free life of thought. For this, we need a life of thought separated off from the political state. Now, my dear friends, I have given you a few indications today of what is moving in the humanity that must aspire today toward a new formation of society. We can't set out social challenges today using the usual trivial concepts. 
we have to have an insight into the nature of modern humanity. We must catch up on what we have missed in our study of modern humankind. We will soon have to leave, so I will speak about these matters for the last time tomorrow. So we will gather here again tomorrow at half-past seven. It might also be possible to present a few short pieces of Eurythmy, and then we will have one more lecture tomorrow because we will probably have to leave this week. I have some things to say to you tomorrow that are connected with my book on the social question, which was out of print but which will come out again very shortly. I have some things to say in connection with the book that are particularly close to my heart. The end of Lecture 11